Hello, my name is Dr. Katherine Garforth from Garforth Education, and this is the Right to Read initiative. And our initiative, we're trying to get information out to teachers and educators who are interested in making sure that all students get the right to read. Today, I am very uh, fortunate to have Kate Wynn from This Mom Loves join me today. And we're actually doing a two day um, thing. So today we're talking about Kate's journey to the science of reading. And then tomorrow we're gonna see what instruction looks like in her kindergarten classroom. And she might be known uh, for a quote from today's parent where she said, I'm a kindergarten teacher and the way that I've been teaching reading is wrong. And I think many of us can relate to that because our teacher education programs did not uh, give us the support and the understanding of how to teach reading. It was the expectation that kids would get there on their own. And if there was a problem, you wouldn't have to worry it about it because that's what special education was for. Uh, so hello, Kate. Why don't you give us a little bit of background about yourself? Sure. So I have been teaching for 22 years. I teach in Ontario. I think our board has the longest name, the Peterborough, Victoria, Northumberland, Clarington Catholic District School Board. So we just call it PBNC. And yeah, so I currently teach kindergarten. I've been there for six years. But before that, I was in grade three, four, eight years, sometimes two, three, sometimes a three, four. I did a year of junior. I taught for three years. I was an itinerant teacher with the school board working with gifted students. And then I actually started my career 22 years ago um, with four years of teaching core French. So I've had uh, quite a range of, of different experiences. At one point, I did a bit of uh, rotary with seven, eight language as well. So uh, lots of different things under my belt, but uh, definitely kindergarten my focus now. And I'm so excited to be here talking to you. Well, thanks for joining. So let's go back to where it all started. Uh, your teacher education program, what did that look like? So I did the Trent Queens concurrent education program. It was a really excellent program, great reputation. I enjoyed it very much. I felt like I was prepared to teach because I didn't know what I didn't know. And also I knew at the time with my core French credentials that French would be where I was starting. So I think also I wasn't as focused on what I might need to know, you know, in a, in a homeroom class. So I just, you know, jumped right into teaching. And I, when I look back at what we did in teacher's college, a lot of it, like we certainly had a language class, like we had any other class, but a lot of it was more, you know, maybe the language comprehension side of things, but a lot of things like talking about how to run literature circles or novel studies. I remember doing some th certain things with poetry. So not that that wasn't valuable, but I don't remember any actual instruction on teaching the foundational skills of reading. So if I had jumped right into, you know, a, a primary homeroom, I don't know where I would have started with that because it really just isn't something that that I think we learned about. So then, you know, my teaching career began and I, you know, had all the experience that's, that I that I told you about. When I was teaching, you know, junior or even the older primary grades, like all my years in grade three, I mean, I love literacy. It's my favorite subject. And I thought I was doing a really good job. And I think I think I was doing a fairly good job, but I still didn't know what I didn't know. So, you know, my kids were progressing in their PM benchmark levels. Like I thought they should be, um, you know, I would always have those couple of kids that were way behind, but they'd be pulled out for special education. And so it was kind of like, well, I don't know, how do I teach decoding? That's not for me. I'm not sure what to do with that. It was kind of, you know, somebody else's thing and, and I didn't know what I could be doing with them in the classroom. So that was kind of how, how I felt with those guys. You know, some of the things that were popular, like guided reading, I feel like I kind of had some instincts at the time because there were certain things where I just thought, no, I, I don't, I don't like this. This isn't working. Like I really tried to maximize whole group stuff. And then I did prefer, you know, small group to kind of work on what they needed to work on. But I did some guided reading anyway, because I thought, well, this is the message. This is what we're supposed to be doing. So, you know, I kind of tried to, uh, to you know, toe the party line with all the messages we were getting about balanced literacy, which was definitely the focus. Um, and then, you know, a lot of my kids, like they were reading trade materials. So I didn't really have to worry so much about picking leveled books and that sort of thing with grade three. And I would say, you know, nothing really hit me. There was no spark of something's going wrong here until I made the shift to kindergarten. That, 
that was when things really started happening. Yeah, and you probably had that same thing that a lot of kindergarten teachers get and realizing that, you know, just being read to is not going to mean that these kids are going to learn to read. We actually do have to teach them something. Oh, exactly. And I mean, when I started kindergarten, like I'm a keener teacher, I'm a total nerd. So it's not like I don't, you know, pay attention to the things that I should be doing, but I was just trusting the sources. So like kindergarten, well, there's the program document from the ministry. So I'm following that, following things you get from the board, following things that come from the ministry, from other PD that you're doing. So of course that real balance literacy push and all of the research I was doing about starting kindergarten, so much of it was, you know, the play based and the inquiry and what kind of provocations are you going to set out like cute things you could take pictures of and put on Instagram right but again not that foundational skills piece and I know um I know tomorrow night we're going to really get into you know how things do look now that I've made yeah. a shift to structured literacy but some of the things that I was doing wrong and wrong it seems like kind of a dramatic word because really you know that idea is no better do better and I didn't know better then like and is anybody watching now you know, you're only doing what you know how to do, what you've been told to do, what you've been told you must do, right? Until you know better and you kind of have that um, that autonomy to do to do the right thing then. But some of the things where I was kind of going off the rails, I mean, in terms of phonological and phonemic awareness, I didn't really know what that was. I had come across a couple of books that had, you know, syllable games and rhyming games and things. So we might do a little bit of that, but not in any sort of, you know, consistent way. The phonics, the kids, I mean, I I'd had, of course, heard of phonics and with kind of my old school mentality, I thought it was probably important, but they were just doing one letter in sound a week, which I know now is, is not what it should be. And really, it was a case of sort of undermining that phonics by using totally the wrong resources when we weren't doing phonics. So I read a blog post by a woman this morning in the States, and she moved from balance to structured literacy, and she used the expression it was like, it's like pushing the gas and the brake at the same time. And I thought, okay, that's so perfect because teaching a little bit of phonics, but then handing them the books where they're predictable or where they absolutely have no way to decode. So they must look at the picture to guess. So using the absolute wrong tools and giving them the wrong messages. Right. So, and I think sometimes we think, oh, what does it matter if they're guessing at some pictures? No big deal. You can do both. But I mean, we'll get to uh, everything that I've learned in a little bit, but I mean, one thing I've learned is it actually is harmful. It's not just like a neutral thing, like, oh, well, they can guess sometimes they can predict it's okay. You're actually setting up their brain the wrong way in terms of the connections that we want them to have to actually do that true reading, right? But I didn't know that. Um, and I was using those strategies, like those cute things that you see on Teachers Pay Teachers and Pinterest, you know, like use your eagle eye, look at the picture and that sort of thing. And I cringe now, even when I think about like letters I sent home to parents, where it would say right on there, if child gets stuck in one of these predictable books, you know, just tell them to use their eagle eye. And I was like passing along these, these things because I didn't know when I thought, okay, these are cute and that's going to help them and look at them pointing to the words and saying the right words. So, wow, I'm, I'm teaching them to read. But then I realized that when I would go to do assessments, they weren't actually reading. So that's where I just started thinking, okay, something's not going right here. We use the PM benchmark assessment system. And I know they'd start to read books. And, you know, even in the first book, it's very, it's very predictable. You can use the pictures. But, you know, I remember sitting with one little guy and he would come to a word like um, bus and he would look at the picture and he said, school bus. And I'm thinking, you, you should be able to decode bus. Like th that part you could actually decode, but it doesn't matter. They are not looking at the words. They're not looking at the letters. It's looking at the picture. And then we'd go to the next page. The word was truck. And again, I mean, you've got, you know, a few letters in there, but he still should have been able to sound out some of it, but it was no, it was dump truck because he looked at the picture and made a guess. And so that's where I thought, wait a second, something, something is not right here. Um, I am just not happy with how their reading is coming along. And so that's when I knew uh, something needed to change. Yeah. Well, I, I guess with your experience with the older grades, you had the knowledge that well this isn't what books like <laughs> look like in grade two three and four right so what are you supposed to do to help them with that transition when the pictures aren't there yeah exactly and I mean you know in grade two and three it just didn't see I wasn't seeing that the same way right and you're exactly right when I was looking at it in kindergarten and looking at those books and and just realizing okay this isn't actually teaching them to read and I'm pretty sure that's part of my job so uh I knew I had to go uh go looking for some help definitely 
So where did you start? Like, how did this transition begin? So yes, so I started my deep dive into the science of reading and I am a reader at heart. So I mean, Google searches, looking for articles, research, that sort of thing. Started um, with Emily Hanford. I mean, we know her great um, reports that she did. So you can kind of listen in podcast form, but you can also read them online too. Book recommendations I started coming across. So I started ordering a ton of books. And I mean, you've got those heavy kind of, you know, cognitive science or neuroscience, like those kind of ones like your Seidenberg and Dehane and Wolf. And so, I mean, I would read those and I would sticky note everything, but the heavier ones like that, I would kind of just sticky note, oh, this actually would apply to me teaching kids in a kindergarten class. And, you know, so some things were, were practical there, but a lot of it was more sort of the, the science and theory, right? But then I also came across some really practical books. So, I mean, No Better, Do Better by David and Meredith Lieben was excellent. Um, Reading for Life by Lynn Stone, even The Knowledge Gap by Natalie Wexler. So those are all like really fantastic, more practical books for, for application in the classroom. And I started listening to podcasts too. I mean, the science of reading the podcast is great. I like triple R teaching. There's a new one now actually literacy talks, which is great too. So I just started soaking it all up. And I mean, COVID hit. So I was doing this right around the, the time of, of beginning of the pandemic. So there was all that time at home too, right? So I started attending webinars and doing that sort of stuff. And then um, in the fall of 2020, I started trying to implement a little bit of it in the classroom, but then I actually in November, 2020 was diagnosed with breast cancer. So I know I've talked to people before and it's kind of like, well, how did you have the time to learn this and whatever? And I kind of make the joke that, uh, you know, getting diagnosed with cancer isn't the best way to free yourself up for PD, but it also, I was home for a few months. And for me, whether it's right or wrong, productivity is kind of a part of my identity. So, you know, when I was off work for so long, it also just made me feel better in a sense to be researching something and looking something. So, I mean, I have pages and pages of type notes and Google Docs and, and so many things. I started attending all the webinars I could do in the PD sessions. And there's so much free information out there too. I mean, I paid for some, but you can really soak up a lot of really great worthwhile stuff that's free. So I did a lot of that. And then I started kind of putting stuff out there, like sharing on social media, the things that I was doing and, and seeing. I started a hashtag science reading Saturday series on Instagram. Now I find Twitter is really the place to be in terms of social media for the reading related stuff. But on Instagram, I was also kind of trying to hit parents too. So mm -hmm. even though it's not necessarily the biggest professional following on my Instagram account, I also wanted parents to start learning about this as well. So that was, uh, that was sort of that, that piece of things. And then, um, it ended up an editor saw the things that I was doing on there and that created a whole other uh, part of the journey. Yeah, well, and you know, it's the story that I hear again and again from teachers, you know, there's that one thing that just doesn't click with how they've been taught. And then that causes them to look elsewhere, whether it's their own child struggling with reading and they're like, wow, you know, I'm a teacher, I should be able to teach my child to read. Or it's that student that really sticks out and it's like, wait a minute, something's not right here. And it can be very difficult to come to that acceptance. Like, yes, I've, you know, I've done training, I shouldn't be able to know how to do this, but I can't. Mm -hmm. And I think our teacher education programs are filled with great knowledge. But we need to be realistic about the expectations we're having with the knowledge going into the teacher education programs. You don't just go into teacher education programs straight out of high school. You have courses that you have to take to get there. When you're doing courses like English, you're not learning how to teach reading and you're not learning that foundation. You need to go to linguistics. Yeah. to get some of that knowledge, you know, about phonological awareness and phonemes and articulatory gestures. And I'm not saying every teacher needs to know these, but teacher education programs need to acknowledge the vast range of knowledge and experience their pre-service teachers are coming in with. And that's not a negative thing. It's just being realistic about expectations that, um, we have for the program and realizing that we need to start at square one and go into the elements of what reading is, how we change the brain, 
uh, so that it can become a reading brain and the steps that we need to go to get there so mm -hmm. that all of our students get access to the right to read. And I think the Ontario Human Rights Commission's report does a really good job about explicitly outlining the things that we need to include in this so that all teachers, and we're not just talking about kindergarten teachers here, if we're looking at the larger frame, it's going to take a, if we change today, all of the teacher education programs to include this, it would take about 30 years for every teacher to have this in their pre-service training, right? Yeah. So we need to make sure that we have the changes to the pre-service changing, but also the professional development. And while you had the mixed blessing of breast cancer to get this knowledge, um, not everybody has that time or ability to do that deep dive in. I mean, it all depends on, you know, what you have to do to prepare when you're a beginning teacher, just starting out, getting all those resources and everything organized. We need to make sure that there's professional development in place to provide teachers with this knowledge. Yeah, oh, for sure. And, you know, I was actually just on a phone call today with uh, the new literacy consultant for our board, and we were just talking about, you know, professional development and, and what teachers need to know and who needs to know when and that sort of thing, because that is going to be such a huge piece of it. And I mean, you're right, just a couple of things that you said made me uh, just triggered things I wanted to mention. Like, one is, I realized what a great resource our speech language pathologists are with our board, because in their training, they did get way more of this than we did, right? So I mean, there are disciplines where they're getting more of this information as opposed to you know in the teacher training program so you're absolutely right it needs to be way more explicit and uh and take us back to you know the foundational skills and and work our way up it's not just about you know Shakespeare <laughs> and that sort of thing like if you're taking university English courses that's what you're doing you're not talking about uh, how the brain learns to read so certainly that's going to be important and you're right the professional development for the current in-service teachers because we do need to uh, to bring people up to speed but how you also mentioned, you know, parents who are teachers. And I think, you know, I know you had Nancy Young on talking about the ladder of reading, the whole idea that, you know, some kids need even more explicit instruction than others. And so I think that was something with me when my girls both learned to read really easily. I didn't see what actually goes into it, right? Like if they're not in that group that needs the explicit instruction. And so, so many teachers I've come across who have learned about the science of reading, especially the ones who have, you know, you know, become really passionate about it and advocates for it or whatever, they have discovered it through their kids who have struggled to learn to read. And you're absolutely right. It's because they would sit down with their kids and, and think, okay, well, wait a second, I'm a teacher. And I'm like, you can be a really good teacher. Cause as I said, we didn't know, we, and you don't know what you don't know. And so you can be sitting down with your child thinking, well, darn, like what's going on wrong here that I can't even teach my own child how to read. What's the problem. And so, so many people, that's how they discover it is because of their own children. Because when you have kids in your class, I think also, you can sometimes have that, well, you don't know about the family and maybe they're not read to. And there's sort of those things that you're not sure about that could be factors and maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But with your kids, you know, as a teacher that you are reading with your children at home and you're surrounding them with books and, you know, so much literacy and you know, you're doing the right things. And so then when they still can't read, that's a real warning sign, right? So definitely, I think that's how a lot of teachers came across it before, because I mean, now the science of reading is starting to get a lot more publicized, and especially now in Ontario with Right to Read, but the ones who, you know, go back a little way lo ways longer, I really think it's a lot of them found it because of their own kids. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, going back to that, the, the teacher education and professional development, I think, you know, we need to make sure that every teacher has a basic course in phonics at all grades, because you know, when you're doing the letter of the week, you know, it takes you 26 weeks to get through the alphabet, uh, or even if you do a couple letters in a week, but it's realizing there's also digraphs mm -hmm. and understanding what a digraph is. And then when we look at, you know, things like the Dolch sight word list, it's like, oh, kids need to memorize these. Well, no, if they have the appropriate phonics knowledge, a lot of them are actually decodable. And you're not going to the word the saying, uh, it's, you know, that TH is a digraph. 
yeah. and you teach that. And that's a digraph that you should teach early, just like NG is mm, not mm, G, yeah. right? So you see little kids sounding out words s, I, mm, G for sing. Well, it's s, I, mm. mm -hmm. And especially now that we're getting more of the Asian language influence, where NG mm, is uh, uh, phony. And we're seeing it in the spelling patterns, you know, for last names and everything and realizing that it mm, is not mm, g, right? Yeah. And you see those kids just at the beginning and you can see them, how their mind's changing. Okay, well, when I'm spelling, it's S-I-N-G and I should be saying sing g, right? Mm -hmm. Or bring g. And it's just learning about these things. And it's things that a lot of teachers are individuals who learned how to read easily. And they were able to internalize the code and through experience and exposure to the spoken language, they were able to pick these things up. Now I'm an individual that reading did not come easily to. I'm severely dyslexic and I did not learn how to read until I was in grade six. So, um, going into the teacher education program and having them say that kids learn how to read on their own don't worry about it and that's what special education for that you know hit a chord with me saying well no that's wrong yeah um and, and that's what has ignited my passion into this and being the parent of a dyslexic child seeing it again um and that's where we get this passion so mm -hmm. Now, I know that you've done a lot of advocacy work through media, Yeah. right? You've been interviewed on several occasions yep. and even wrote articles in magazines like Today Parent. Can you take a little yep. bit of time to talk about those? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, just before we move on to that, I just want to say too, like, even as a teacher, I'm learning things about phonics that I never knew. Like, I didn't even know anything about voiced and unvoiced sounds. No idea. No idea what that was. Like, I, I don't think anybody ever taught me that. Nothing I'd ever heard about, read about before until I started teaching it to my students. So, I mean, I it's kindergarten. These are four and five-year-olds. Some are now six. And I, I'm sometimes learning things with it. So, I mean, it's it's kind of cool. It kind of blows your mind. But, yes, they they definitely need that. But, yes, yeah, so today's well, but, well, Sorry, while you bring up the voice and unvoiced, I mean, that's a huge thing that's definitely missed out. But it's important for teachers to know because when we're looking at spelling errors, we see that the C and the G or the K and the G are often mixed up. And the child's trying to sound out phonetically. You're like, why on earth are they using a K instead of a G and get? Yeah. Well, it's because they're struggling to notice the difference between the voiced and the unvoiced sound because the shape of the mouth is the same. Mm -hmm. It's just the voiced and the unvoiced. And we see these with our English as an additional language students where the phonemes aren't necessarily the same between the two languages. Right. Yeah, no, definitely so important. All right, so continue, sorry. No, no, that's okay. Um, so yes, yeah, so today's parent, what ended up happening is I've written a lot of articles for them in the past. And so one of the editors follows me on Instagram and I just kept you know, pumping out all this stuff, the science of reading structure that is all the stuff I was seeing. And so she reached out to me and said, you know, I think we need to do something with this. And um, I was, you know, I just started my medical leave at the time and I, I didn't want to do it right away. I thought, you know what, I need, I need a little time to mull all this over. And then finally I decided, yeah, let's go for it. So um, I started on an article and then I ended up switching editors. I ended up working with um, a great editor, Claire Gagne, and she's actually a mom of two of her children, I believe have dyslexia or struggle, struggle to learn to read, absolutely. And so it's been a passion of hers as well. So she really wanted some articles. So we did a set of pieces for the fall issue of Today's Parents. So I did my whole article. You know, you mentioned the whole I'm a kindergarten teacher and the way I've been teaching kids is wrong. So that was kind of the, the title they gave mine. She did one from the parent perspective on you know what it's like to do the right things at home with your kids and then have them struggle and and you know the steps with that and then we collaborated on some where it was you know some tips for parents if your kids are just learning to read tips for working with kids at home um, when they're already in school and they're learning we did a little bit about a right to read update so it was a, a fun collaboration it was um 
it was a lot of work, but it was, it felt valuable to be putting this information out there for parents too, right? Because I think there's that sense of they're failing somehow if their kids can't learn to read. And I mean, I don't think there are very many parents left out there who don't know that you should read with your child and do all that stuff, lots of books, because it certainly has value. Like, I mean, it certainly, you know, you've got the positive associations with books and you're teaching them. I mean, the really little ones, you're teaching them how to hold a book and, you know, all of that stuff. And then as they get older, it's the language comprehension piece of hearing the vocabulary, gaining content, knowledge, all of that stuff. So absolutely it helps with reading, but in terms of looking at words, the decoding them, knowing the letter sound correspondences, it's not the parent's job. And so I think they need to be off the hook a little bit, you know, for when their kids do struggle, that if you're doing all the right stuff at home, it's not your fault. And so here's kind of how things work. So that was part of why I really wanted to uh, to get that out there. And so it went out, like the print copy came out in the fall, but my one personal piece went online right before Labor Day weekend. And it was my first quote unquote viral thing on Twitter that just got shared all over the place. I was really nervous because I talked about like kind of what you and I have talked about today so far, you know, just sort of my journey and, and where I was going wrong and that sort of thing. And I was afraid that like, I didn't want anybody to feel like I was throwing them under the bus. So I know even at one point, one of the editors wanted it to be, you know, and the way we've been teaching reading is wrong. And I said, just change it to the way I've been teaching reading, not we, because I don't want it to look like I'm saying anybody, like, I just want to take responsibility for myself, right? Mm -hmm. That it's just the way I know that I have been doing some things wrong. And by wrong, really what I mean is there's evidence to show that there are better ways. <laughs> and that's not, nothing that I knew about before, right? So I was really worried. And I also was so careful because I didn't want it to look like, you know, I was blaming my board or because my board has been really supportive. And, you know, I didn't want to be... I, like I said, throwing anybody into the bus, but the response was actually really, really supportive. I had so many kind comments and, you know, retweets and private messages and all of that sort of thing. I think the only one kind of nasty one was I'm in a few Facebook groups on the science of reading. And in one of them, it wasn't me who posted it. The administrator of the group posted, Hey, look at this, you know, mm -hmm. from a kindergarten teacher that just came out. And so the members of the group probably would just assume that the author wasn't in the group seeing their comments and lots again, were supportive. But this one guy, it was basically like, you know, I can't believe this. Like how stupid do you have to be to be teach 20 years and not know about phonics? Well, I didn't say I didn't know about phonics. I said I was doing letter of the week and I know now there's even a better way to do that, right? So I don't know if he even read the whole piece or not, but that was my only one. And I mean, I, I hate those kinds of comments. They bother me, but you know, I had to kind of take that one with a grain of salt because I, I don't think he understood the piece or read it all if that's what he got out of it. Because yes, I had heard of phonics and actually was doing a little bit of it, but I have learned that I could, could be doing a better job. So um so yeah, and I know like it's been exciting to actually start implementing things because again, last year with the whole, you know, cancer. And then when I came back in April, um, that was our board went back to virtual. Like the day I came back, it was back to virtual till the end of June. So there were so many things I wanted to implement, but they just didn't make sense doing it virtually. And like certain things, even that I tried, like phonemic awareness activities and all that, I need to be able to hear the kids, but I didn't want them to have 24 microphones on when I'm trying to, and then I'm trying to say, oh, I see your lips moving. Oh, that's good. And I have no idea if they're making the right sounds or not. So it was hard to do that in the spring virtually. So I would say like this year since September, like this is my first hardcore. I feel like I am running a structured literacy program. And I know we're going to get into the details of that tomorrow when we talk, but uh, no, it's just really exciting. Definitely. Well, I think it's important to acknowledge that balanced literacy approaches do work for some students. So teachers aren't doing a horrible job, right? They are teaching the way that has been in vogue since the 80s. And because a lot of them, it's the way that they were taught to read and they didn't struggle with it. They don't see the problems with it. And they see their kids figuring it out. They see the kids that come to kindergarten already reading and like, well, obviously they didn't have structured literacy at home, uh, but they still figured it out. But that's just like the kids that are talented in a sport yeah. and have that natural ability. They're more predisposed to that tendency. Mm -hmm. And you, you can't assume you know what's happening in the household. Maybe they did get a lot of instruction 
-hmm. and support and guidance. And, you know, even some of the the, the leapfrog and the, you know, the different e-toys that you can get actually do have a fair amount of phonics instruction. It may not be the best phonics instruction, but they do have some and they're able to pick up a lot. I mean, my youngest has got it pretty well uh, just through the, the minimal stuff that I've done with her and through the educational toys that we have and, you know, seeing what we've done with our siblings. Yeah, but it's, it's understanding that it's okay that you haven't known this before. And mm -hmm. it's okay that your teacher training didn't prepare you for it. But now we need to take that scary step forward and get out of our comfort zone and learn how to do it better and have the support doing it. Yes, it can be a journey that you take on your own. Uh, lots of teachers have done it, but it can be very overwhelming. I mean, you have the story of, you know, the Amazon cart that's full of all these books. And then you have the guilt of the stack of pile of books on your bedside table or on your shelf that you really want to read and have every intention of reading, but life's busy and gets in the way. So what we need to do is come up with that systematic way that we can go through this and provide support to each other as we're going through this process together and realize that it's not going to happen overnight. I think Kate is frozen. Kate, are you there? Uh, yeah, she uh, dropped out. Hopefully she'll sign back in. But, you know, today's webinar is really about understanding that this is a long journey. And, you know, research on the schools that are having success going through the, oh, you're back. <laughs> Great. Uh, you need to unmute. Okay, sorry about that, I lost a minute. That's okay. Uh, I was just saying how this is a long journey and teachers shouldn't have to feel alone in this journey. And it's about creating those support groups and learning from someone else and realizing like there's a lot when it comes to the science of reading, structured literacy, there's a lot to learn and it's not going out and buying, you know, something off teachers pay teachers and throwing it in your classroom right away. It's about taking the time to understand the concept, how it's done and actually implementing it in your classroom, working with your peers to help you understand and get suggestions on how to do it. And if you have a colleague that, does a certain skill well, then ask them to help you and support you. Uh, Kate, are you still there? Hmm. I think she might be having connection issues. Um, but yeah, what we're trying to do with the Right to Read initiative is provide that place of reference to make it so that you can have access to the information that you need. And in the Right to Read initiative Facebook group, we're hoping to create a mentorship program to help you along your way to the science of reading and structured literacy to make it better for your students and help you feel like you're not alone in this journey. So please do reach out follow the Right to Read initiative, join the Facebook group, follow us on Facebook so you can know about more of these upcoming lives. And I think we have Kate again. I'm sorry, must be my rural internet I'm dealing with tonight, but okay, back again. <laughs> um, so I was just talking about how this can be 
you know, a, a group effort in making the transition. And, you know, the work that we're doing as advocates is really trying to help teachers move forward. So do you want to speak a little bit about the advocacy work that you've been doing? Yes. So everything that I soaked up and then, you know, just inspired me. And then I think when you see it working in your classroom and you realize the difference it's making, that's when you just want to shout from the rooftops. Like that's where you want to just start telling everybody like, oh my gosh, you have to try this because look at what my kids are doing. So I did, I did get really excited about doing some advocacy work. So I had interviewed Alicia Smith, who's the president of the Ontario chapter of the International Dyslexia Association. She was one of my sources for my today's parent piece. And we had kept in touch a little bit. And through her, I've been able to do, you know, a lot of PD. And then also she's invited me to be part of some presentations. So um, I was with a group that presented to Minister Lecce, for example, and some of his team about, you know, the right to read and structure that I see. And this was a couple months ago before the actual right to read report came out. And, you know, we won't get political about anything right now, but I will say he was very receptive and said the right things and seemed quite impressed by the presentation. So that was all very good. And then we also got to present to the opposition critic for education. Um, she's an NDP, NPP, Marit Stiles. So we did a separate presentation for her as well. And again, you know, very supportive. We presented to federations, uh, teachers federation representatives, and that's always a tricky thing too, because I mean, even with Right to Read in Ontario, some of the things that are coming down, I mean, new curriculum, it's always hard for people to learn a new curriculum. You know, do we have the resources? Do we have the PD? That sort of thing. The idea of a screener, you know, how do teachers feel about being mandated to do something like that? I mean, I will say I totally see the importance of it and I will be trying to convince teachers as much as I can if there's any pushback on that because I also do appreciate, like, you know, we have... Um, uh, a policy in Ontario in terms of, you know, having teacher discretion in terms of assessment tools and things like that, because there was a time that we were all, you know, being required to use certain things and we didn't see the value and it kind of added to the workload and, and all of that. So absolutely, I, I stand for teachers' rights. And I do still think that, you know, doing this screener is going to be very important and something that we want to do. So, you know, it's also important that we've got those teachers' federations, that they know what's going on, they know why this is important, why we want it. Um, I know in other provinces I've heard of, you know, teachers unions not necessarily backing new curriculum and that sort of thing. So I don't want to see that happening here. Um, I got to present to the organization for directors and superintendents in our province, which was exciting. There were more than 100 of them that that attended that. So that was really neat. And then I also just did a little mini um, a kind of a book talk sharing five favorite science of reading books at the IDA Treat symposium that was held a couple of weeks ago so it's just been really fun great experience for me and again I just feel like it's you know I'm giving something back and I'm sharing and you know the ultimate goal really is we want all kids to read and I feel like if I can do anything if I can help I I want to keep doing that um, I've made great contacts as well like I know you had Kim Lockhart on talking about structured literacy with FSL she's amazing and it wasn't until we were doing some things with IDA and emailing back and forth that we realized oh my goodness we went to university together together <laughs> and we haven't even made the connection so I mean fun to reacquaint with people but just I've made so many new friends and you just start to feel like oh you know a question will come up and I'll think oh there's that SLP that I know now I'll ask her what she thinks or oh I know somebody in that board that's using that screener I'm going to ask them about their screener and everybody's just so amazing and I want to be one of those people too that anybody watching if you have any questions that you think I can help you with don't ever hesitate to reach out because I'm just so enthusiastic about all of it um one of the great books I read was The Art and Science of Teaching Primary Reading by Christopher Such. And after I read it, I just thought, okay, I wish more people could read this book. And you know what? I talked to my principal first and then I emailed my superintendent and it kind of works out because she was my principal like 20 years ago near the start of my career. And then she was my principal last year right before she was made superintendent. So, you know, we've got a great relationship. And I just said, you know, I read this book. I would be happy to facilitate a book study, but like, can you give that the green light and send out the memo and that sort of thing? And she was so supportive so we did that we decided we would close it at 50 applicants and within a couple of days we hit that and so we had to turn people away and make a wait list and and that's been going really well we've had two out of five sessions you know talking about that book so that's that's something exciting that we've been doing and then also I know you mentioned earlier like I do some tv segments too and I've been doing those for years I actually do them for um Global's the morning show now which is a is a national morning program but I haven't really delved too far into the science of reading until the one I 
did on the March break and I did six myths about learning to read for parents. And I would say that was my second viral, you know, piece of media because that just went all over the place. Like I was getting retweets and replies, like, you know, across Canada, of course, the States, the UK, Australia. I had somebody from Romania follow me and message me about it. Like, it's just crazy all the different places that people are you know, excited about the science of reading. And then of course the parent community too, right? When that was intended for parents, you know, I had a lot of people saying, I'm going to use this at a parent meeting, a parent council meeting, that sort of thing, because parents need to know, you know, the myths about reading and, and kind of the truth about how the brain learns to read. And, and I mean, not everybody needs to know every single technical detail, but there are some things I think that parents and teachers alike all need to be aware of. So, you know, it's been really, uh, it's been fun and it's been hard work to do a lot of this stuff. And I know somebody made a joke the other day, like, oh, you can probably retire early now with all these extra things. Like, no, no, this, <laughs> I'm not getting paid. Volunteer? <laughs> I mean, yes, when I did an article for today's parent or, you know, those sorts of things, yes. But I mean, when I'm just doing little presentations and web, you know, all of that sort of thing, that's, um, you know, that stuff is just me being excited and, and wanting to help. So yeah, I'm just, you know, really thrilled to be involved in all of this. And the biggest thing is just seeing the kids. Cause I've thought about, you know, what I want to just, you know, kind of, you know, take a different path with my career and do more teaching about this with adults and that sort of thing. But it's really being in the classroom. That's where it, you know, it, it feeds me because I'm just seeing how it works and I'm seeing the kids like, and just to think like I taught them to do that and now they're reading like there's just I don't know a joy or a sense of fulfillment that I get and I know it's cheesy but hey it's it's uh, keeping me going right now <laughs> well and it's like when you have a child and they first begin to learning to walk or talk and that pride right seeing a kid that struggles to learn how to read and you get them there it's just this blissful moment that's like you know what yes this was hard but all this hard work has paid off and this kid's future got a lot brighter. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the thing that I think we need to highlight is we're not doing this. We're not trying to initiate this change because, you know, it's best practices or it's what the research says. We're really doing this for the kids mm -hmm. and trying to make it so they don't fail at their first job, which is learning how to read. Yeah. And, and the negative consequences really, that are associated with it, right? Yeah. And I mean, I think the better, you know, we haven't talked about, you know, the three tiers or anything tonight, but the more we can do with kids in our tier one, like our whole class, our instruction, like right from the get-go, I think we're going to be able to relieve some of the pressure from, you know, the special education system and, you know, who needs tier two, who needs tier three, um, because you'll, you'll always have some, you know, with severe difficulties who are going to need some extra help. So the idea isn't that we're going to eliminate special education entirely, but I do joke with this sort at my school because she runs Empower programs, which are fantastic. And I just try to joke with her that, you know, like if I keep doing my job really well, like, you know, I'm going to be starting to take away your job because you won't have so many kids. You still have some, you always will, but we will have far fewer kids who need the extra support just because they're getting proper instruction in the first place. Mm -hmm. Well, and that means that the special education teacher can really focus on the intensive intervention that that student needs and save the parents from having to go find it outside of school, after school, with money that's not available because it's expensive to do those after school tutoring programs. They're not always quality ones available where you live, finding the right person and you know being the taxi driver to get them there and back puts a lot of stress on life that would be much better if we took them away. And I know I've spoken with a lot of um, school psychologists and sometimes when they're doing psychoeducational assessments, which is something that is used to diagnose a learning disability, and at this point, it's still required to get that formal diagnosis, they are struggling to say that this child definitely has a specific learning disorder in reading because they can't say that they've had the quality instruction that was needed to exclude it from just being they just haven't been taught. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem that we see with the discovery-based, inquiry-based learning as we're leaving kids to learn it and infer it, discover it on their own. But what about those kids that don't? 
And that yeah. those are the kids that we're trying to do this structured literacy approach. And it's easier as a classroom teacher to teach it to everyone mm -hmm. than not to. And the research is showing that those kids that are getting it already still benefit from it. Yeah. And the more that you understand about the English language and how it's spelling and writing happens, you're able to pepper in little comments here and there. I was talking to someone earlier today and they mentioned they had a very precocious student in their kindergarten class and they were teaching the letter S representing the sound S. And this little child raises her hand saying, well, I have that sound, but I don't have that shape in my name. So on the spot, the teacher was able to say, oh, well, do you know what? There are other letters that can represent the sound S. One of them is the C-E that we see in your name, Alice. And being able to use that teachable moment for that incidental teaching. Well, yes, not all of your students are gonna get it, but those higher students will. Yeah, no, I find I do those things as well too. And I mean, you know, and I, it's funny because we've got our sound wall and we'll talk about that tomorrow, I'm sure. But, you know, and then putting the kids by the sound. Mm -hmm. And so for almost everybody, it lines up nicely because the sounds are pretty much, you know, what you would expect. But, um, you know, I mean, I don't want to use kids' names here, but there are a couple where it is just sort of like even the first letter of their name. It's like, okay, that's not the way we learned it. So I'm going to have to tell you that, you know, that one's an R-controlled vowel. So that's why we're not saying it the way that you think you're supposed to say it, but we will talk about that later, right? So yeah, I mean, and there are kids who are ready for that sort of thing. And I mean, we did short vowels, but we've got an Olivia. So um, we talked about how, okay, but sometimes though also it has the O sound, you know, because you do sort of use those examples, but but you're right. And I mean, we, we know that there are those kids that absolutely have to have the explicit instruction or they're never gonna get it. And there are the ones that benefit from it and can get more from it. And then there are the ones that might make those connections. And I think it's important to note too, even the ones who, and I think a lot of it's luck, um, that their brains can make those connections. They don't need the explicit teaching. They don't need as much. They still are forming those same pathways. They still, it is still the sound letter, meaning all matching up together for them. It's just, they didn't need the explicit instruction to get there. So it's not a case of, oh, they're just sight word learners. Or like some of those things like, oh, they just need whole words or they just learned from whatever. However it is that, that it all processed, they still do have to make those connections in their brain with the letters and the sounds. It's just, we maybe didn't need to teach them and they picked up on it so much more easily so every kid can still benefit from from the structured literacy approach so it definitely is important and you mentioned you know in Cree and that sort of thing I know that's so important and I think some kindergarten teachers listening might be saying well hold on I love doing my inquiry and I love the play base and I love the nature and the outdoors and all that there's a place for that I mean we still do all that stuff too but we still have a few moments in the day where we have explicit lessons and we do a little bit of paper and pencil work, which not everybody's quite you know, comfortable yet within kindergarten. But we do some of that, but that doesn't mean we don't play. And that doesn't mean we don't you know, have other subjects where we explore a little bit more. But with literacy, I'm not leaving it to you figuring it on your own. There is a spot for direct instruction and I am going to tell you what you need to know and I'm going to make you practice it until you learn it. And, and that's how it is with the literacy piece. Yeah, and even highlighting that, at, you know, especially at the kindergarten level, when we're first introducing the stuff, it's very important to also include that writing piece. I mean, the science of reading is, you know, a great term. It's actually the science of reading and writing and spelling. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we need to make sure that it includes all of these aspects. So, you know, there's so many people liken reading and writing to breathing in is the reading, reading and breathing out is the writing. So we want to make sure that that explicit instruction follows to the output and to what we're asking them to do in their home reading programs if we're sending books home. I mean, there's even a lot of talk about, well, is that really appropriate? You know, it's great to send storybooks home that families can read together, but why should we be sending books home that they don't have the skills to read? Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, your examples earlier when you were screening the, this student and saying dump truck. 
right? If parents don't have the knowledge, um, then how can they support the child? And if they don't know how to sound out the word, because yeah. they don't remember, which is fine. I mean, not everybody remembers how they learned how to read. They just remember reading and that's completely yeah. okay and all right, but it makes it harder for you to teach someone who's just at that learning stage. Yeah, for sure. And I did want to mention, um, Dr. DeHane has this really cool video of a brain imaging of a skilled reader and how the brain lights up as they read. And it's important to note that all skills readers have the brain light up in the same pattern. So they need this. They may not have had it the same explicit way, but they figured it out on their own. We're just enhancing this and we need to make sure that our students with specific learning disabilities or other issues that are having it, learning how to read more difficult for them, we need to train their brain so it lights up in this way when they're reading. And this is across languages. Mm -hmm. So that's, yeah. you know, that's the thing. And that's why these journeys to the science of reading and structured literacy or structured language and literacy are so important just so we have a better understanding because as educators we are professionals and we have to commit to being that lifelong learner and realizing that it's not the days where you could get your degree and just do everything that you learned at the beginning all the way through your career because there is this active fast-paced changing science of reading and the stuff that we're talking about today is going to be advanced upon and we'll have a better understanding of best practices of how to do it within the next few years and we need to keep current with the research and keep our practices changing so that we're doing the best that we can from the beginning and not just get in that comfortable place and glide yeah, I think we're going to be uh, need to prepare for a lot of changes with uh, with literacy as as things all play out. But I think I mean here in Ontario with the right to read recommendations, I think we have a really good you know path to follow, and uh, like I think it's going to lead to uh, some really valuable change here. Yeah, and you know what, people around the world are recognizing that the recommendations and the information in this document are so valuable and really lead the way for how ministries and you know education departments can make positive change going forward to make sure that their teachers have the knowledge that they need to teach reading and that their students get the instruction that they need to learn one of the things that you brought up was the screening and i like here in british columbia we do have mandatory um assessments at grade four and grade 10. And the problem with these is they're given and nothing is done for the teacher with the results, right? When we're advocating for screening and even if it's mandated, it's not just a test that you're giving the students, you're trying to get them to study for it, ace it and move on. The screening methods and the screening measures that you should be doing are ones that are only gonna take a few minutes and you're gonna take that information from the screening measure and apply it to your instruction so you can better meet the needs of all of your students in the class. You are going to be able to group your students appropriately, understanding the skills that some are strong in and some are weak in, so you can really tailor the instruction to their needs and take them forward and having that screening a couple times throughout the year is going to allow you to adapt and change what you're doing with students based on their response to intervention. Yeah, oh, exactly. I mean, it's going to be so valuable because I mean, I think a lot of us kind of have our own little you know, unofficial screening tools that we use and, you know, trying to, like you talked about with groups and I don't want to get ahead of myself with tomorrow, tomorrow's topic with what I'm doing in my classroom. But yeah, I mean, let's just hope those things all get implemented because um, they're going to be so helpful for our kids. And especially at the kindergarten level, the, the K-1-2, there is so much that we already know about. And there are very 
effective screeners that are published and available that you can do. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You can use it and it'll chart it. It will give you the results and it will say, okay, these students need this, these students need that. So it's very prescriptive taking that work away from you and you can just focus on the interventions that you need and understanding how to support those students. So while it may seem like this big, huge project to take on and learn and master, if you have the support learning to use the screening measure and have the support your first couple times using it and understanding the results, if you put the effort in, I promise you, you're gonna see results because these ones that have been created are looking at those pre-reading skills that if you don't change, will give you a prediction of where they're gonna be at in grade four. And this isn't new. We've been seeing these for 20 years. It's just taking time, getting that research into practice. Yeah, I'll be interested to see whether like the Ministry of Education here in Ontario, if they mandate one specific one for everybody to use, because I know like our superintendent was saying at a meeting the other day, like, would that be amazing to have provincial data, right? Like the whole, the whole thing. But, um, but if not, then I know our board will, will choose one. And uh, I, I'm excited about it. Like I'm considering actually getting trained in one myself right now, just so that I'm ready to go in case we don't have anything in place for the fall. I'm just interested to see how it all works and managing the data and, and uh, you know, what I would do with that. So I may just go ahead and do that anyway, so I can do it in the fall. And then if we change to something else, then so be it. But at least I'll, uh, I'll have a little bit of that experience under my belt. Well, the, the thing is the concepts are the same that they're screening for. It's just using different items. So if you do learn a screener, then even if there's a different one, it's only gonna be subtly different. The instructions might be different. The items that they're actually working with might be different, but the concepts are the same. I know Dr. Nadine Gab has uh, said that it's better for a district to you know, select a couple given the situations that different schools are in and saying um, to have you know, a list of screening tools that are appropriate given the school population, right? Because they're gonna have different skills coming in. You'll wanna look at different levels. So if the district or the ministry or the province or the state, wherever you are, takes in the consideration that here are five or six screeners that we say meet our standards, you can choose which one and it gives that autonomy a little bit more to teachers so they can pick and choose and see which one works best for their instruction style and which results um, they like working with the best, how they like the results exported to them. Is it something that they're gonna have to hand score and do all by themselves? There are things that can be done on tablets. And so you just get the results out or do you like actually sitting there and doing it with the students so you can get that more information and you can take those anecdotal comments that are really gonna help you see where the student's at and move forward with them. Yeah. I noticed a question. Yes. Um, yeah. uh, do you have a specific screener that you're thinking of looking into more? I'm personally looking at Acadians right now. I'm just hearing so much about it. And I know someone who, you know, is a trainer and I've been back and forth talking to her about it. And uh, I just feel like it looks like one that could be, could be a great use for me and uh, well, for others as well too. But I just thought I might, uh, I might try to go that route and just try it out. And again, if that's not the one that our board goes with, I mean, I'm sure it would be approved by our ministry, but if our board was a different direction, like you said, at least I would have the experience of using the screener, but I just like, you know, and I like the data collection tool and just being able to work with all of that information. So Acadience is the one that I'm thinking of right now. Yeah, and it's important to know that all screeners are not the same and they're not created Equally, there are some programs out there that have a very balanced literacy focus and they have screeners associated with them that again are looking at things that aren't gonna give you the information that you need for your students. Like if they're looking at the dull sight words and using that, 
that's not going to give you the information that you need to look at your students. You're going to be wanting to look at phonological awareness, phonemic awareness. You want to look at real word and pseudo word, which are words that are phonetically regular that they have to sound out so you can see them actually using those word attack skills because especially at these early grades it's easy for kids to memorize the words yeah. but not really understand what we use so cat <laughs> yeah exactly um and then looking at the spelling and in those kindergarten one two years I think it's really important, actually, even in the later grades, is getting sitting them down and getting them to print their alphabet. This may not be part of many screeners, but that something that you can do in your classroom to see how long it takes them to write the alphabet, looking at their letter formation. And every time they stop, do they have to go back and start back at A to figure out which letter comes next? because these are all things about automaticity and fluency that are gonna inform your instruction. Because if it takes so long for your child to sit and print the alphabet, knowing how to shape the letter, if that hasn't gotten to automaticity, they're gonna to continue to struggle. And that's a skill that you need to work on with them. All right, well, thank you so much for joining me today, Kate. I'm really looking forward to our conversation tomorrow where we actually get to see the type of activities and how you approach teaching literacy in your kindergarten classroom. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. We'll see you tomorrow.